One of the reasons we're listening to the book of Acts is because as a church, we want to be on about reaching our region. Acts reminds us that God saves sinners. God saves sinners. God saves all sorts of people. And God doesn't change. So what God was doing in the first century, he's still doing in the 21st. And since this is true, just as we hear in the book of Acts, we're called to take the message of Jesus to the world, to our neighbours, friends, family and colleagues. There are a few ways our hearts can be moved to get on board with God's mission. One way is to use guilt and shame, to twist your arms, to make you feel really bad about how you fail to tell people about Jesus. But not only does that not work, you get very little traction trying to motivate people by guilt or shame. Not only does it not work, it's not how the Bible gets people on board with God's mission. The Bible gets us excited about evangelism through things like the book of Acts, telling the story of people who get saved. That's why it's great to ask people, great to ask believers, how did you become a Christian? If you're ever stuck at church, particularly with a person you don't know very well, you don't know what to talk to them about, why don't you ask that question? How did you become a Christian? Because it's great to be encouraged by stories of how God saves people. The other way we get excited about God's mission is being excited about Jesus. In 1 Peter, we're told Christians have the job to tell the world how excellent Jesus is, to declare his praises. Today we're looking at Acts 17. Often uh, people look at this chapter of the Bible as a how-to guide. We see Paul taking the gospel, uh, the good news of Jesus, to very different contexts, and we can learn from this chapter how the same truth can be communicated differently to different people. And that's a valid way to approach this chapter. It's what we did in growth groups this, this week. But today we're going to take a different angle. Today we're going to sit and listen to how good Jesus is. We're going to imagine ourselves at the synagogue in Thessalonica in the council of the Areopagus and we're going to hear how good Jesus is. We're going to have our hearts filled with how good Jesus is because I reckon that's what best motivates us to get on board with God's mission. Jesus is so good and unless people hear, they're going to miss out. So Paul and his mission team are continuing their mission into Europe. They're following God's call into Macedonia and Greece. Uh, When they get to Thessalonica, they make their way to the synagogue. Have I already... Yep, Thessalonica, that's where the arrow is. They get to Thessalonica, they make their way to the synagogue. Uh, The synagogue is the place where Jews and Gentiles who worship the God of Israel gather to hear God's word. Uh, Paul goes into the synagogue and tells people about Jesus. So have a look in your Bible, Acts 17, verse 1. This is from verse 1. When Paul and his companions had passed through uh, Amphilopolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead, This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. 
Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. This is great. Three Saturdays in the synagogue and a three-point sermon. The Messiah, that means Christ, that means God's promised king. Point one, he will suffer and die. Point two, he will rise from the dead. And Paul proves these things from the Old Testament, the scriptures. And then he gets the big reveal, the mic drop moment. Point three, Jesus is the Messiah. Now, I'd love to know exactly what parts of the Bible Paul spoke about. He could have chosen all sorts. This this message about God's Messiah, it's all through the Old Testament. Maybe, let's imagine, maybe he went to Isaiah 53. So this is where we're going to do our Bible flicking. It's worth seeing where this is in the Bible. So keep a finger in Acts 17 and flick back in your Bible to Isaiah 53. If you've got one of these black church Bibles, it's page 511, Isaiah 53. So Isaiah 53... And from verses 4 to 5, we see how God's promised servant, the Messiah, the Christ, we see how he must suffer. Have a listen to what Isaiah says, verse 4. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But... He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. God's king, God's Messiah, God's servant, he would be pierced. Nails through his hands and feet, a sword in his side. He'd be crushed to death. And yet Isaiah says, this isn't meaningless. It's good news. The Messiah is pierced. We get peace with God. The Christ is wounded. We are healed, forgiven, restored, made new by God. Can you imagine sitting in that synagogue as your eyes are open, as you hear for the first time, your understanding of the Messiah is totally changed. Not a mighty warrior, but a suffering servant. And yet, God will rise him, raise him to life again. So look a bit further down in the Black Bibles. It's the next page, verses 10 to 11 says this. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Yes, The Messiah will suffer, but he will also see the light of life. He'll be crushed, but through his death, his days will be prolonged. He'll see his offspring, not his biological descendants, but his spiritual offspring. Everyone who turns and trusts in Jesus. And can you imagine sitting there in that synagogue for the first time, God's Messiah will suffer and rise. Verse 11. 
And then Paul says, the hope of Israel has come. The Messiah, the prophet spoke of, has suffered, has risen again. It's Jesus. And then Paul would have said, like the prophet Isaiah in verse 11, come to Jesus, be justified, get right with God. Not through your good works, not through your obedience, but through Jesus' death and resurrection. And over those three Saturdays, some of the Jews and loads of the Gentiles who are already worshipping the God of Israel, loads of them have their eyes open. They come to faith. But... And we know this to be true. The gospel was polarizing. Some believe, but others, I take it the majority, were outraged. How dare Paul say God would allow his Messiah to suffer? And they're so outraged that they're not content to merely chase Paul out of Thessalonica. Don't bring your false teaching here. But they go down the road to Berea and chase him out of that town too. Now, we don't have time today to look at the riot and the persecution. We're also going to skip over the reception he gets in Berea because we want to listen to what Paul is preaching. So we're going to pick up things up as he gets to Athens. So at this point in time, Athens is still the elite centre, the centre for culture, philosophy, and for religion, for the Greek gods, the Parthenon of Greek gods, the home of great temples filled with marble statues. And as Paul wanders around, he's not like the average tourist to Greece. What strikes him isn't the height of human achievement, but the depths of idol worship. These elites think they're wise, but really they have no idea. And so, and and this is a new thing in the book of Acts, instead of taking the gospel only to the synagogues, Paul takes the message to the streets. He, He goes and stands in the marketplace and speaks of Jesus. Verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. And in the marketplace, Paul gets noticed by the philosophers. The philosophers are confused and intrigued by this new philosophy. They find him strange. Actually, they don't find him all that impressive. They call him a babbler, literally, They call him an idea picker. But because they're philosophers and talking and listening to new ideas is their hobby, they invite Paul to speak at the Areopagus, kind of like the the top debating club. Maybe it's like getting an invite to speak at the press club or on Q&A. Verse 18. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears 
and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Now, I reckon this this must have been pretty scary, a pretty pretty intimidating opportunity to speak in the pinnacle of Greek philosophical society. But Paul doesn't come across as all that worried. He knows these philosophers might sound good, but they've got no foundations. They're built on sand. More than that, they're built on nothing. They have no foundation at all. Verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I found, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you. Now, this unknown God thing is sometimes misunderstood. Uh, some people think that by worshipping an unknown God, the Greeks are doing the right thing. They're covering all their bases. That by worshipping at this altar, well, they're really worshipping the God of the Bible as best they can. Uh, but no, the, the unknown God uh, reveals more than the philosophers realise. They think it shows their wisdom, that they're pretty smart worshipping any other God they might happen to be that they haven't learnt about yet, but really what it shows is their ignorance. They don't know God. The reason this is important is some people take from verse 23 that maybe you could be a worshipper of an unknown God. Maybe if you're a serious Buddhist and you worship the unknown God through the teaching of the Buddha, or you're a serious Muslim and you worship the unknown God through the teaching of Muhammad, some people think what Paul is saying is, well, that's okay. As long as you're genuine and devoted in your worship, it doesn't matter what name you give to God, that's okay, you're just doing the best with what you've got. And on the last day, you'll discover your unknown God was Jesus and you'll be saved. But that's not true. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, you guys have got no idea, no wisdom. Your unknown God says more than you realise. You really don't know anything about the true and living God, so let me tell you about the things of which you're ignorant. Verse 24, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made the, all the, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their land. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. When Paul was in the synagogue, his message was, the Messiah must suffer and rise again. Here in the Areopagus, 
to those who are by their own admission ignorant about God, his message is there is a God, one God. And he is the creator of absolutely everything. He is the true God. He doesn't need anything from us. Unlike idols that have to be fed by sacrifices, unlike idols that need to be cleaned up and carried around, the one true creator God, he doesn't need anything. He is everywhere. He's not limited to temples. And then I reckon this is Paul's key point. So listen up, verse 26. Because there is one God, one creator, this means there is one humanity. So everyone, everywhere must acknowledge the one true God. Now this is really important because for the Greeks with their idols and many gods, what many of them thought was each tribe, each nation has its own God. And each god has its own area of responsibility. So there are mountain gods and sea gods. There are fertility gods and gods of war. And so each nation, each tribe, each family is different. They should worship the god that's most relevant for them. But the Bible says there's one god, one creator, and all people are to worship him. Now, verse 26 has often been misused by Christians. I've heard people take the fact that God made all the nations and he marked out their appointed times and boundaries. And this verse is misused to justify apartheid and multiculturalism, colonialism and anti-imperialism, globalism and nationalism. People twist this verse to support their political and social views. If you you hear Christians use this verse to talk about those sorts of things, they're missing the point. Now, the Bible does help us think about those big topics. I think for most of us, we just need to get on with living faithfully for Jesus in the world we're in. But that's not the point Paul is getting on with. The point is there is one true living God. And he controls all things, all of history, kings, nations, borders, languages. He is the Lord of all. And because he is the Lord of all history, all the world, every single person on earth is called to respond to him. Verse 27 says God's purpose is people would seek him. More literally, that they'd grope around for him. But... He's not actually far from us. This is like what Paul will later write to the Christians in Rome, Romans 1, 18 to 20, that people have suppressed the truth by their wickedness, although, verse 19, since what may be known about God is plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. God is not far from any one of us. We are without excuse. And even the pagan poets knew this. They knew God can't be an idol. He's not a statue. He is alive and present everywhere. In him we live and move and have our being. And he is our creator. We are his offspring made in his image. 
Even the pagan poets know this. And so, having said there is one God, and he is the God of all the earth, the God of all people, now we get to the pointy end. Humanity has turned our back on God. We've been deliberately ignorant, living as if he's not there, worshipping idols instead of the living God, and this deserves God's punishment, God's judgment. But instead of wiping us out, God calls us to repent. Verse 29, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. What does the resurrection of Jesus mean? What does it reveal about Jesus? I think we often look to the resurrection as proof of God's existence. If Jesus rose from the dead, there must be a God. But that's not the point here. The resurrection proves Jesus will return to judge, that Jesus is the judge of the whole world. If Jesus was crucified and rose again, if he has ascended to the right hand of the Father, that means he will return again to judge the living and the dead. And so, repent. This is the time of God's grace. Turn from ignorance. Turn to God. Cling to Jesus for mercy and forgiveness. And it's at this point, as Paul says, Jesus has been raised from the dead, therefore repent, the philosophers lose it. For some, this is unthinkable. For others, it's intriguing. They want to find out more. And for a few, they believe. Verse 32. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. In God's mercy some in Thessalonica, many in Berea, and even some in Athens have their hearts open to receive Christ. God was saving people then. God saves people now. I think for some of us, we've got a gut feel for the kind of person we think God will save. We think, look, there's some people who are more sympathetic, like maybe people like the Thessalonians, Maybe they already believe some true things about God. They already believe kind of the majority of the Bible. Maybe they're the people who are going to be more open to hear the gospel. And then we think about the elites, those who are highly educated about lots of things but don't have time for God, and we think, well, what's the point? They don't, they're not going to want to hear about Jesus. Acts 17 shows Jesus is the judge of all the earth. He, he is the truth wise people need to be saved. He is the truth that good people need to be saved. And God saves the wise and the good. But not everyone will believe. 
Not everyone will be like Lydia in Philippi, having her heart opened by the Lord. But God is saving his people because he is the one true living creator God. He is the God of all the earth, the God of Greeks and Jews, the God of Australians and Armenians, the God of Chileans and Chinese. Out of one, he has made all people. Jesus is the Messiah who lived and suffered and rose again to to make for himself, to call for himself a people of all the nations. And Jesus commands everyone everywhere to repent, to turn from idols, to turn from self-reliance, to turn from human wisdom and to find salvation and forgiveness in him, to be justified through faith in Christ and to give Jesus the praise and honour he deserves. Uh, This is what drives God's mission. Knowing this truth, having it deep in our hearts and having it overflow from our hearts onto our lips, this is what our family, friends, neighbours, our whole world needs to hear. It's what we need to hear. So let's pray that God would fill our hearts full to overflowing with Jesus so that we might speak of him. Please join with me as we pray. Father God, we praise you for Jesus. Please fill our hearts to overflowing with love for Jesus. May our minds be captivated by his goodness and beauty. Help us know the depth of our sin and the the greatness of his salvation, that he would suffer for our sin, rise for our justification. We ask that as we know this, we would be driven by love for the lost and by a desire to see Christ glorified, that we would be on board with your mission, reaching our region with the good news of Jesus and partnering with your global mission. Amen.